It's time to talk about the Smashing Pumpkins Siamese Dream. Things are gonna change, I can feel it. If this gonna be that kind of party, I'm That's how we do it, you guys. Welcome back to Waterproof Records with Jacob Givens. I, of course, am Jacob Givens. It would be weird if I wasn't. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's our second episode, but in a lot of ways it feels like our first, because in the first thing I released, it was more of kind of a welcome intro. Who am I? How did we get here? What is Waterproof Records? All that stuff. Yada, yada, yada. So if you have any interest uh, in learning any of that stuff, go back to the very first episode, the welcome and intro. And you can learn a little bit about me and kind of why we're doing this. But if you don't want to care and you, if you don't care, you don't want to care and you just want to dig into the good stuff, then let's go. So we're going to talk about today the Smashing Pumpkins Siamese Dream because Smashing Pumpkins is my favorite band of all time. And you've heard me say both Smashing Pumpkins and the Smashing Pumpkins. And that's a, that's up for debate sometimes. Um, I've even had people come at me on the videos that I've made and been like, excuse me, it's just Smashing Pumpkins. Well, this one's a little more confusing. Not like The Pixies, which everybody messes that one up, including myself from time to time. That's just Pixies. But um, the debate is out because in the early days in Gish and Siamese Dream, a a lot of the records and posters and everything, it just said Smashing Pumpkins. It didn't say The. And then later on, The was added. So I think recently in an interview a couple years ago, I think Billy Corgan was quoted as saying that it's the Smashing Pumpkins. But I really don't know the full story behind, you know, what the correct thing is. But I I, to the, I think nowadays I just refer to him as Smashing Pumpkins still out of habit. Um, anyway, but it doesn't matter. It's about the music anyway. It's so funny about how information spreads now and what we have access to reading stories on the internet and social groups and whatnot and what we were stuck with in the nineties. And when this was going on and, and decades before, of course, it was always word of mouth. You know, it was always like you heard a story, you had a friend, you know, your older cousin tells you this tale and it's just passed around and passed along to everybody. And you just, you know, you take it as gospel about the band or the, the true story. So a lot of the stuff that I've held on into my brain about the pumpkins, um, you know, maybe one of these days I should go cross check it. And, and as I get myself more out there in the music communities and the fan, communities I could learn more and be like, oh, I was always wrong about that fact. But it's neither here nor there. Um, this band means so much to me because there was something about this album in particular. First of all, it was the first CD that I ever bought. I bought, uh, back then, if you're my age, you'll remember this, CDs were kind of, when they first came out, kind of a premium item. You didn't just go out and exchange your cassette tape collection for CDs. They were expensive and the players were expensive. It was like if you had a friend or you went over to somebody's house, they had a CD player and a bunch of CDs. You're like, wow, you must be uh, doing quite well for yourself. It was not, it was a little bit more luxurious. I mean, definitely from the perspective of a kid, but my parents weren't just like, sure, let's go buy the latest and greatest technology for music. So the first uh, CD player that I got my hands on was just one of those portable ones, like a like a Discman. But I think it was like a generic knockoff of 
the name brand stuff. It wasn't even Sony. It was like some company I can't even remember. Top, probably doesn't exist anymore. But it was one of those portable players, and I was able to plug the back of the player into the current stereo that I had, which was a tape deck and a radio and whatnot. But that was the only way I could have CDs. And so I went out and I bought Siamese Dream, and I bought... Kiss of the Spider Woman, a musical theater <laughs> CD. Because yes, I was a theater boy, and I really was was going through a show tunes phase. I um I still like show tunes. Uh, I, that didn't last into my adult life as much. Like when I was involved in musical theater, and I was in the productions, I got very passionate about it. Um, and I still enjoy listening to some of them to this day. But anyway, I went out and I bought those two CDs, and this album Siamese Dream, it was so impactful for me. Because before this, I had heard of the pumpkins. I remember it was during a summer youth group through my church at the time when I was a kid in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We were doing one of those summer service projects where you're like, you know, scraping paint off of a house and then painting it that needs repair, helping those in need. And there was this kid who came along. I'd never met him before. And he had all these great bands on cassette tapes. And I remember he loaned me a cassette tape. And on side one of the, of the tape was um, Pantera's Vulgar Display of Power. And then on the second side was Smashing Pumpkins' Gish. Now, at the time, I was listening to really... I was starting to get into really heavy metal because I was an angry teenager and had to work out all that angst. And so I was getting from... Metallica and Megadeth. And, and then when I heard Pantera, I was like, you know, I loved the sound of how hard that, that album was. And then by the time I got to side two, I listened to Gish once or twice through, but it, it wasn't captivating me and not because it wasn't good. I just don't think my headspace at that age was quite ready to appreciate kind of this psychedelic classic rock mi mixed with this, you know, these sonic sounds that the pumpkins were putting on that album and Gish has a much more trebly distortion. It's much more like a classic rock, like it doesn't have the thickness of Siamese Dream. And there was something about the way the warmth of tones and the power of tones would come at me. And so it wasn't until I got into Siamese Dream that it really turned me on to them. And then I went back and really got the appreciation for Gish. And then also a big kind of bridge between the two was Drown off of uh, the single soundtrack. I remember hearing that song and just, oh man, I should save talking about Drown for when we cover the single soundtrack. Um, but anyway, so once I got this, I remember I was watching, I think it was 120 Minutes, and the Cherub Rock video comes on, and they're in the middle of the woods late at night, and there's like all these flashing lights and colors, and just it starts out with that build, that build, that build. And then once that guitar comes in, I was like, wow, I just love everything. And I know that that was the, um, the iconic big muff pedal that I believe uh, Billy was using during this era. And, uh, you know, you learn later about the studio production on Siamese Dream and, and just the amount of layers and time and energy. It came out on, let me double check the date. I thought I knew it, but July 27th, 1993 on Virgin Records. So it, it was, um, I've read stories about what went through that period of time when they were recording the album. And it was stressful um, for Butch Vig, who you know is a famous record producer and also drummer of Garbage and... You know, he's been in the music scene forever, really brilliant producer and musician. And he had produced Gish already, um, I believe. Um, and uh, 
he was coming back for this one. And this time around, they relocated from the Chicagoland area over to, um, where is it? Let me see. It's in Georgia, right? Somewhere in Georgia. Marietta? Marietta. Triclop Studios in Marietta, Georgia. Um, and the story goes that at the time when they were going to make this, this record, um, they were trying to get away from the temptations of uh, drugs and you know wildness of Chicago, all the friends that, that Jimmy was struggling with at the time. So they thought that if they relocated to Georgia, um, they could really avoid those distractions and it wouldn't be a problem. But I think that within the first 48 hours, Jimmy had tracked down um, what he needed to get his hands on the drugs. And uh, they were stuck with the same problem. But they were there in Marietta, Georgia, and that's where it all came together. But I, I, I know that even at the time, when I got my hands on like Earphoria and Viewphoria, Viewphoria was that uh, VHS tape that kind of showed you the behind the scenes. Um, you know, you could see that there was a lot of like tension and insanity in putting this thing together. Um, I'll never forget, there's this part in the video where Billy tells this story about like a, a guy who's doing a traveling circus or something like that. And he's talking about how he asked them to come along, other people to come along with them. And he's like, I'll, I'll pay your way. I'll, 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 you know, make the roads, the inroads for us. But then when it comes time, you, you owe me for getting you there. And I remember I'm, I'm probably messing up this so bad, but if you've watched the video, you'll know what I'm talking about. And I remember even at that age, when I watched it, I was like, there's some serious passive aggressiveness going on in this situation. Of course, there was an enormous amount of pressure to make the most amazing record of all time, but there was a lot of this kind of, you could see why animosity would form in this band because the communication was like going on this video and talking about the other members as if, you know, they weren't giving enough, they weren't contributing enough. I was like, wow, that's, uh, that's going to rear its u- ugly head later. But then again, at the time, he was in his 20s, and I mean, I look at that now, and I go, so young um, to be in the spotlight and to have so much fame and attention and all eyes on you. So, of course, you say things, and years later, you'll be like, whoops, that was probably not a healthy way for me to handle that. But anyway, but the the album has so much sonic layers, and I remember reading somewhere that songs like Soma... And I think Silverfuck have, you know, 40 guitars layered in there. It's just unbelievable. I think it's been said 40 guitars and, and 100 guitars in some parts. But you can really tell. You can tell that these guys were working 15-hour days and just grueling amounts of time and, and care to delicately put together what became an incredible album. And I have right behind me on the wall, you can see it's framed. That's the that's the actual vinyl that I bought that I want to say in 1995. Um, the funny thing was I didn't even have a vinyl player at the time. I think my mom had one. I think my parents had a stereo with a record player, but I personally didn't have one, but there was this kind of, um, prestige and coolness about owning a record. And I remember we were on a family vacation in Minneapolis and, my brother and I wandered into a record store and I just felt this impulse to buy Siamese Dream on vinyl. It was, I think it was 1995. And I remember opening it up and, you know, it's framed right now, so I can't show you, but it's this marbled red, you know, and I think that's a pretty early pressing of the record, which is pretty cool. Um, it's in good shape. The cover isn't because it's traveled, you know, quite many times with me, but uh, the record itself looks pretty good. But I have that one framed, but I also have... I have the, uh, of course, the 
a remastered one as well. So I do have this, which is great. And then I have the CD. Here's the original one. This is the disc that I bought. And uh, oh, I've obscured the front because I used to do this when I was a teenager. I have the concert ticket preserved for the first time that I saw the band right here. And I would put it in the CD cover so I would keep it safe. So anyway, before I talk about that, so this is the um, this is it, man. This is the CD that I bought uh, my my first CD along with Kiss the Spider Woman. I don't think I still have Kiss the Spider Woman. Oh look, and I have a sticker in here that's never been used. I I don't know if this will explain and help you understand the kind of person I am. I liked getting stickers, but I never would commit to putting them on things. So I would always get stickers and they would never be stuck on anything. That that should give you like an idea of the kind of finicky um, person that I can be because I I, I just was always like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to mess up the look of something because I put stickers on it. Anyway, that's, that's funny. I don't know if anybody can relate. I remember I had like an ALF sticker that was given to me and I had it forever like on my desk still not stuck anywhere. It was just like, you know, <laughs> that's funny to me. Um. Anyway, so obviously I never committed to putting it on anything and it still got its back. Uh, but yeah, and then somebody the other day I was doing a um, live stream and somebody brought up, they said, it's, isn't it funny that on the disc for Smashing Pumpkin Siamese Dream, this cover of these twins with the dragon, this image right there, that was also on Lenny Kravitz's um, album, Are You Gonna Go My Way? And I, I don't know if Virgin was just like, eh, just use that graphic again. Nobody will notice. But if you got that CD, the same picture was on there. I, I always thought it was more unique to the pumpkins. but Or maybe it was and it was recycled. Who knows? If you know, tell me. But um, anyway, let's get to talking about the, the first show, the first time seeing the pumpkins. This on here says it's cut off on the top. There it is. Something. And Little Wing presents Smashing Pumpkins. X. Expo Square Pavilion, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, doors, 7 p.m. Show, 8 p.m. Admission, $15. And this was on a Tuesday, you guys. Tuesday, March 29th, 1994. Apparently, this was ticket number 192. And it says general admission on the floor. This was a very memorable moment for me. Because I mentioned on the previous episodes... I was in a Christian household growing up, and my parents, I know my mom had some major concerns about the kind of music I was listening to, and I think on the heels of the satanic panic of the 1980s, if you don't know what that is, maybe I'll talk about that later, but there was this trend because of rock music and parents. I mean, you still see it with like Lil Nas X now. You still see the stupid reactions to rock and roll that these fuddy-duddies still have about music, you know? It was like the satanic panic of the 80s convinced all these waspy parents in the Midwest and the suburbs that, like, every band was going to turn your parent, your kids into Satanists and you were going to be, like, in woods. And, that, that and like, woods having, like, sacrifices and stuff like that because you listen to Judas Priest, you know? And so, I, I mean, it even spread to the kids. I mean, uh, kids like my age and uh, my peers and kids that were older than me th- that went to my church and whatnot would always have these stories about old, older teenage boys like in the woods and robes and writing pentagrams and all that stupid stuff that you know is nonsense. But at the time, I think it, it put a fear into parents that were kind of sheltered from the world. You know, if you grew up in a big city... Maybe you didn't have this at all with your parents, 
But these suburban parents in the middle of the country were like, oh, I don't know. I think what my parent, what my kids are listening to is going to turn them into Satan. Um, so I think in the back of my parents' mind, they were worried about rock and roll and like the scene and everything. So my brother and I weren't going to rock concerts from a young age. A lot of people who follow me now who are obviously had super cool childhoods were like, oh, I was in second grade and I was at CBGB's just like right there with the sex pistols. I mean, cool. Good for you. You had a really awesome open go out into the world childhood. That was not what it was like for, you know, kids like me. It was like, no, you, you want to go see a rock concert. You can go see Michael W. Smith with the church. You know, that's what you get to do. So by the time rock, rock shows were starting to come through Tulsa, I remember there was this one night when, um, we had a friend who was going to be going to go see stone temple pilots with butthole surfers and flaming lips before them in, in Mohawk park in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And somehow my parents agreed to let my brother and I go to this show. And that was really my first like outdoor rock concert. And it blew my mind. I loved it. I'm going to talk about that one more on another episode, maybe about STP or flaming lips. But, um, so I'd been to that show and I had gone with my brother, but this show, um, 94, it was the early part of high school. I want to say it was a freshman and I wanted to go and I was going to be going by myself. And I went to the, my dad dropped me off and I went to go see the thing. And I remember him saying, you need to be outside. I think it was outside at like 10 PM. No, no ifs, ands, or buts. You know, I had to be outside. And so I go see the show. The opening band was called red, red meat. And I, I was pretty close up. I don't think I was really far back. I mean, it's Tulsa. It wasn't a giant place, but you know, I, I had a decent seat. I don't watch the show and it's incredible. I was fortunate enough to be, it was one of those concerts that was, they were in a good mood. <laughs> I think you hear a lot of stories about whether it was a Lollapalooza or it was a concert where Billy was mad or something and they were just, you know, not having it and just, you know, kind of, you could see the anger and the fury in their performance. I was fortunate because my first experience, I had one of those amazing sets where they're just feeling good, having a good night, the energy's positive, um, and they're playing all these great songs. And of course, the Pumpkins, notoriously, when they were in good moods, would play long sets and encores and whatnot. And um, they were playing, 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 and I'm keeping an eye on the time. And this is before cell phones, you guys. So I knew I had to be outside by 10 p.m. So the concert's still going. We're getting to 10 p.m. And they're coming out for encores. They're playing more songs. But I just walked outside, stood there at 10 o'clock, got in the car with my dad. I didn't mo whine and moan and complain. I didn't go, I really wanted to stay. I didn't, I didn't bitch. I just got in the car and drove home. And my dad told me the next day, he said, you want to know something? He said, when I came to get you at 10 and I heard that the concert was still going, he's like, I expected you would come out and beg to stay and, and beg for more time or complain or give me a hard time for making you come out at 10 and you didn't. And because you just did what I asked and you didn't complain next time there's a concert, you can stay as late as the concert goes. So sometimes it pays you guys to just, you know, <laughs> not, not push your luck out of the gate. You know what I mean? Like if you're asked to do something, this goes out to you kids. Sometimes if you obey and you do the right thing and you do the thing that your parents asked you to do, look, this is me talking like a dad now. Jeez. You can tell I have two children. Um, this is me telling you that it paid off. 
You know, it paid off. I did this respectful thing for my parents, and then I was given more privileges. And it just continued like that. I just continued through high school to call them when I was out, check in when I was away, make sure they knew where I was. And my opportunities and privileges kept expanding, and I kept getting more freedoms because I let them know that I respected what they were asking of me. Anyway, that was my, my relationship with my parents. They were great parents. I had wonder, a wonderful mother and father, and even with the whole worry about the rock music, they did relent on that, and um, I think that was always the funny thing when I was going through my rebellious teen years, and I would be hanging out with other kids. Um, I didn't really have anything negative to say about my mom and dad because they were like really loving, caring, you know, even if they, they were kind of lame in their music, you know, like, Hey, we're worried about your, what you're listening to still very communicative. So that was good. Anyway, that was a lot about my own family upbringing. Um, but let's get back to the album, saw chair saw the video, saw the flashing lights and the colors and really taken by that song. And that was the video that I think was the first thing that I experienced and so, of course, had to have this album. I was playing guitar at the time. I started playing guitar in like 1992, 91, 92, and learning those octave chords that Billy does, sliding up and down. It was really kind of defined how I'd play guitar. I think a lot of songs I write to this day, I still kind of lean on that style. Um, but then you, I'm not going to sit here and go through every track, because if you know the album, you know the album. But uh, Or maybe I will go through every track. I don't know. Um, the the next video that I remember seeing, of course, was there were several videos off this album. You had Today, which today is a, uh, it sounds like a fun, happy song, but if you didn't know, it's about wanting to kill yourself. It's a really interesting take on when you're depressed and low and you want to kind of take yourself out of the equation and to, to channel it through a tune like that. It's just such a fascinating and cool thing. So today became this like anthem of like, yay, today. <laughs> and then you listen a little closer and you're like, oh, wow. Um, the music video was that ice cream truck. Billy's driving an ice cream truck in the middle of like, it's probably the California desert somewhere. And he's driving the truck and he picks up James and James is in a dress. And then they stop and there's, you know, Jimmy and Darcy and they're on the side of the road with these, you know, cowboy hat and they pick him up and then they start painting the truck and then there's people on the hillsides and they're making out and fondling each other. I mean, it was like, oh, wow. Those moments in the video, I remember being like, mm, well. Um, but the, uh, it's, it's a very cool video. And seeing James in a dress, that was, like a, that was a cool thing, just seeing this kind of playing with the, the gender norms. Um, I even remember around this time, I was really inspired by a couple things by the band's kind of fashion and style. Billy was always wearing those 1970s kind of, uh, you know, flowery shirts with the, with the collars, the butterfly collars. And so I would go to thrift stores with my friends and I would buy shirts like that. And then also the idea of like wearing a dress was cool. I liked it. I like, I wanted to do that more. You saw Kurt Cobain do that from time to time. Um, and so I even on a Halloween around this time period, I think it was a freshman or sophomore, I used Halloween as an excuse to wear a dress to school. And I did. I mean, I think in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the 90s, if I had done uh, a dress uh, not on Halloween, I think I would have really had uh, my ass handed to me. But um, but it was fun. I have a picture of me on stage during drama class, and I'm just casually wearing a dress, and my hair is – the time was long enough that I think I put it up in little pigtails. So it's fun to play with that kind of stuff. Nowadays, I think it's a little bit more relaxed and um, – teenagers and adolescents are able to, to really explore the gender norms and boundaries and 
back then I thought it was cool and I still think it's cool. So keep, keep on doing your thing and figuring out what, what you like, you know, that's what it boils down to. So, um, anyway, so then we get on to uh, Hummer. Oh my God, Hummer. I didn't mean to skip over Quiet, by the way. Quiet's track two. It's a rockin' killer track. Um, all of these are great. Chair Brock, Quiet Today, and then Hummer. But Hummer Hummer was really, really sums up that sound of being in this really like loud, ferocious guitars and then dropping into that quiet, dreamy you know, guitar with all that digital delay and echo. And that's a, just a beautiful piece of music. I love it. Um, then Rocket, another great video. And while we talk about the video for Rocket, I wanted to tell you that something that, that was cool that happened for me in 2019, um, the director of the video for Rocket were a, a couple um, that directed tons of music videos in the 90s, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. They had done, here I have a list of, of some of the videos that they'd done. This is going to blow your mind. They did, later on, they did 1979 for the Pumpkins, but they did All Around the World for Oasis. They did Been Caught Stealing for Jane's Addiction. Um, By the way, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication. Um, The End is the Beginning is the End for the Pumpkins, later for Batman and Robin. Freak on a Leash for Corn. They did The Good Life for Weezer. They did uh, More Than Words by Extreme. I can't believe that. I don't think I ever knew that it was directed by... Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. That's unbelievable. Outshined by Soundgarden. Perfect for the Pumpkins. Pets by Porno for Pyros. Um, Rocket. Smashing Pumpkins. That's why I'm bringing this up. Anyway, there's so many more here. Is there another Pumpkins? Yeah, they did Tonight Tonight. They did Tonight Tonight as well. So the video for Rocket was this kid is building a spaceship in his back, a rocket in his backyard. And, you know, he's using all these little crude parts. It's got this, uh, you know, kind of this DIY feel to everything. And the band is playing in these one, these like spacesuits, silver spacesuits. And he builds a rocket. His friends get inside. They blast off. They get to where this other planet where they land. And the pumpkins are there, but they're all old. But it's a very visually cool video. And Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris did all these videos in the 90s. But then they went on to direct Little Miss Sunshine. And they went on to direct... um, um, this series that came out in 2019 called Living With Yourself on Netflix with Paul Rudd. So I was fortunate enough to um, get to go to the premiere with my wife um, to Living With Yourself. We have a friend who had an opportunity to go and she's like, would you guys like to go in my place? So we went and we went to this premiere and at the premiere they, they show the first episode and then afterwards there's this whole panel up there with the cast and Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris are there and Paul Rudd's there and some of the other cast members are there. So you, they do a Q&A. And um, my whole life, by the way, whether you see it or you don't, it's fine. But I've been told I have a very Paul Rudd-esque look about me. I'm not saying I look exactly like the guy, but I have similar energy to him in some ways. And I've had friends that will watch him in movies and they'll be like, oh, my God, it reminds me so much of you. And I can see it. Absolutely. Um, you know, ever since this online video stuff has happened, people have compared me to other uh celebrities that I, I, I'm like, okay, cool. I, I can kind of see it too. So it's just always in the eye of the beholder, I guess. Um, but I've been told about the Paul Rudd thing. And so I've said it on stage a bunch of times. Um, but we go to this premiere and after the Q and a, then there's this like happy hour in this lobby where you get to just kind of socialize, have drinks, have some appetizers and meet the cast and, and whatnot. So I was, of course, I was looking forward to meeting Paul Rudd, which I did. 
Um, and he was very nice. He was as nice as you would hope he would be. He was so kind and so generous and took a picture with me. And I mentioned the thing about how people, you know, said we looked alike. And he said, hey, I can see that, you know, probably being nice. That's fine. But it was a very nice moment. But the person I kind of hounded and chased down at the event was Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. I got to spend a good amount of time talking with Jonathan Dayton. I walked up to him and I was just like, I got to tell you, I'm a huge fan of your music videos. And he kind of got this curious smile on his face like, oh, I didn't know you were going to bring up those. I think he thought I was going to bring up maybe his other film work or, you know, Little Miss Sunshine. But I was like, no, you and your wife have been doing this in, these incredible music videos. And I was like, specifically this Smashing Pumpkins. I was like, didn't you do like five videos for that band? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took a picture with him. I took, took a picture with his wife. But his wife was talking to somebody else. Valerie was talking to somebody else. So I spent much more time talking to uh, Jonathan. But he did say to her, oh, he's a big fan of the music videos. But anyway, it was a cool moment to, to talk to them because uh, 90s music videos, man, they had some of the most amazing directors doing these videos. And they were so crazy cool. The, they were an amazing couple, Jonathan and Valerie. Then there was Chris Cunningham, who did the, like, the Aphex Twin videos. Then Spike Jones, Spike Jones, Yes, the same director of uh, Her. I mean, he was a vi- music video director. He did the uh, Buddy Holly video for Weezer. Anyway, so I was excited to meet them, and that was a really, really cool moment because Rocket was a was a cool video. Um, and I, I, you know, I learned that song on guitar. I actually learned all these on guitar, and I used to play Rocket all the time. Then comes Disarm. Mm, beautiful tune, beautiful song. Played a lot back then. Um, black and white kind of v- sweeping video v- views of, like, the band and... You know, it was very, oh, very, mm-hmm. That song, um, I love the song, but on the reunion tour that was in 2018, I think, the reunion tour where everybody was back together, except for Darcy, unfortunately, um, I went to go see it here in LA, and uh, I went with my wife, and the show opens, and there's this, like, slideshow of of Billy's, like, childhood pictures that he'd drawn on, that, that style, and Billy comes out and starts playing Disarm. Man, I started to cry so hard. It just, it just suddenly, it's like that moment in Ratatouille when he takes the bite of the food and he's like suddenly whisked back to his childhood. I was sitting there in the stands and these strangers were sitting to my right and <laughs> I just started sobbing and I turned and I was like, I looked her to the stranger and I was like, sorry, this means so much to me. And she kind of looked like, okay. Um, but uh, my wife got it. She understood how much it meant to me. But I just started, like, all the emotions just whisked back to being back when I first heard these songs and how meaningful they were. So Disarm still has has its hold on me. Soma, wow, an epic, epic song. That's the one I was talking about earlier with the, with the layers, 40 layers or 100 layers of guitars. You can really hear it. Very dreamy in those sequences. And then Geek USA, uh, one of the standout moments I remember of Geek USA is I was in college. Now, that song rocks. And if you're a fan of the band, you know Jimmy Chamberlain is like an unbelievably talented drummer. He is so good. Drummers know. You bring up Jimmy Chamberlain to drummers, and they're like, oh, yeah. My college roommate and still friend to this day, uh, Jarrett, he and I were, we were talking about the Pumpkins back then. And we were staying up late one night. We were both actors in college, and we were at this local community uh, theater called the Station Theater. 
and we were painting the set for a play. I want to say it was when we were in, it was either the Lonesome West or it was the Glass Menagerie. I don't remember the play that we were painting the, the stage for, but we were painting the stage. It was the middle of the night. And we're, we're listening to Siamese Dream and Geek USA comes on and he talks about this, this snare roll in the middle of the song where it goes, you know, and he said, that is so hard. Like in that moment, what he's doing right there is so hard. And I, I, that's always stuck out to me in that moment that I really listened to it because I'm a guitarist. I'm a guitar player. And while I admire the drums, I don't have the, the technique and the skill of playing the song. And so I was like, I was like, now to the to this day when I hear that part of the song, I'm like, wow, there it is, really hard part. Um, then we get on to mayonnaise, and of course, if you listen to this podcast because you saw me do the mayonnaise TikTok video reaction with the wind in my face, that is a that's my favorite pumpkin song of all time. It is wow, wow, it is an unbelievable, unbelievably good. Uh, song. It's it's great. It's probably my favorite song of all time. And I would say that Drown is probably my second favorite. And I would say if these songs were in a race and there was a photo finish, Mayonnaise would win by a nose, would win by a windblown hair because they're so close in terms of how much I love them. But Mayonnaise just wins a little bit more. But anyway, I'm kind of glad it took me a little while to make this podcast till at least after I had done the Mayonnaise reaction. Because I thought about doing this podcast early on. And if you've been following me for a couple months, I did a Chair Brock reaction video that just didn't catch everybody's attention as much. Um, that was really early in the in the creation process. I chose Chair Brock because I was trying to be authentic about like this was the song that really took my breath away first. You know, I heard Chair Brock first. So I was trying to be, you know, true to that. And so I chose that to be the the first video. And it was really, my reaction was about how I got caught up in the sound and the moment of the song and that they became my favorite, favorite band. And I referred to the sound of the distortion as sonic caramel. Because <laughs> I was like, it literally felt like the distortion was like sweet caramel pouring out of my speakers. Um, that was my descriptor for it. So people liked it. It was fun. It was fun to make. But that was also back in the day when I was just choosing the songs and the moments available on TikTok to use. Um... And so since then, I've learned, you know, other tricks, although I am getting flagged a lot on social media for for these songs, which I thought I was up operating under fair use. But I don't know, you guys, there's a bunch of laws about music and and stuff you post on the Internet, which is it's not fair. I'm trying to get I'm trying to talk about your band so that they'll go click on your music and download it. So help help me help you. Um, anyway, so I, I did the chair Brock video. But it wasn't until I did the mayonnaise one. And if you haven't seen the video that I'm talking about, I did this video where it's my classic video style of me sitting, you know, next to myself, talking to myself and reacting for the first time. I'm, I'm literally going through the Siamese Dream flipbook and I reference, you know, how does he come up with these titles, mayonnaise, which the story behind the title mayonnaise is, is both that it's the that it's supposed to be like my own eyes. But I think there was another story that Billy said he was just looking in the refrigerator and saw mayonnaise, and that's why he did it. And you know that sometimes the process of naming a song is just kind of unique to what he feels like he wants to do to convey a point. Um, but anyway, it doesn't matter. That song supposedly is a bunch of lyrics and thoughts and ideas that kind of piece together in a random way 
and that really kind of becomes something based on our interpretation and over time of what it means. But um, that song is so powerful. So I was sitting there with my wife and we were trying to figure out like a way to convey it. And she was the one, I got to give her credit. She was the one who said, what about like a leaf blower? Like you're getting blown away. And it totally harkened back to that famous, you know, Maxell tape ad where the guy is in the chair and he's getting blown back to the wall. And I was like, yes, that's it. That's it. That's perfect. So we sat down and we did it. And I'm glad that I'm doing the podcast after the fact. Um, I'm, I'm now able to talk to you about that uh, experience. But that one, it was so cool to see everybody's reactions. And I talked about this on another video. But after I was done making it, I was walk, watching the footage. And she's blowing the air in my face. And as I get to the part where it's like the solo starts coming in and it's just, you know, I'm almost laughing at that point because she's just having so much fun, obviously, blowing air in my face. And I'm just sitting there going like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. I love it. And then I look at the video as I'm putting it together and I'm like, oh man, is this going to look like I'm mocking or making fun of the song in any way? So I started second guessing it that night. I was like, maybe I shouldn't do this to my favorite song of all time. But she assured me, she was like, first of all, I think everybody knows that you're just a diehard fan of music and they would never take it that way. And she's like, I don't take it that way. So I trusted her. And I was like, okay. So I put it out and I'm glad I did because people do really respond well to that one. That one really moved people and and they were like, it's my favorite one and it's my favorite song. So I'm glad I put it out there. So anyway, that was the the mayonnaise story. Um, Then uh, Space Boy, Space Boy, which I had always been told that was was written about Billy's um, autistic half-brother. And then that's the story, kind of the the inspiration. It's a beautiful song as well. Then there's Silverfuck. Um, I joked on that uh, TikTok that, you know, I, I said, wait till you see track 11. And then my face is kind of like, ooh. And that's because, yeah, you know, I already told you about my parents being nervous about what, what I was listening to. So that was like a song title that I had to artfully hide from them. You know, not that they were looking that closely, um, at this point in time in my life, but yeah, so it was just silver back in my childhood. Um, but that's a killer song. I always loved seeing him perform it live whenever I would see the pumpkins live or even on bootlegged like VHS or DVDs of live shows, you know, it gets that part where it gets quiet and he does the bang, bang, you're dead. I remember back in that era, I loved it when he would do this somewhere of the rainbow sing a sing song part in the middle there you know he would be like really quiet just the bass is going and he does the the bang bang you're dead hole in your head and then he would go somewhere over the rainbow way up high birds fly over the rainbow why oh why can't ah and it would jump back in the song i always thought that was so cool such a fun part i don't know why i had to sing you Uh, look you can see the show tunes coming out of me again um but anyway, that that is a killer song, an epic song with feedback um, and noise. I always loved that part. I loved that part. I never never minded the like squeals and whines of the guitars. I thought it was amazing. Oh, before I move on to the last two tracks in the album, mayonnaise. You know, a lot of people wonder what the sound of the the squeal is, the harmonic, the moment when my hair gets blown back. Story goes, the way I've heard it and understood it, it was a sixty five dollar cheap guitar that made loud feedback every time you stop playing. So they just utilized it in the song. People have had other ideas about what it is, harmonics, all this stuff, but it was just a cheap guitar. That's the story. Um, then 
uh, uh, Sweet Sweet, which is just about a minute long. It's a very short song, but you know, it's, it's a precious tune. Um, sweet little ditty. And my second son, when he was little, we used to sing that to him in, in bed when he was a baby. We would go, sweet, 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 sweet little Elliot. So we changed it a little. So it always makes me think of that. Then, of course, the last song, Luna. Beautiful love song. So sweet. Just a, an incredible album, start to finish. Um, you know, as we go through this podcast and we talk more and more about albums, you know, I often wonder, will I have the same level of enthusiasm and, and amount to talk about for every single album? And I, I hope so. I mean, maybe some episodes will be like 20 minutes and some will be an hour. Um, but this album... It, really changed the course for me. Of course, uh, Nirvana's Nevermind was a big deal, but this band and this album, I, I just, I was in for life. You know what I mean? Like I, I bought everything. I bought the boot, I bought the bootlegs. I bought the CD singles. I bought the box sets. I bought the posters. I went to the shows. Um, and then even when they broke up, uh, I still stuck around and bought the stuff when, Billy was doing solo projects and Zwan. And then when he came back with the pumpkins and put out new material, still bought it all because I just, you know, I knew that there would be some things that would be hit or miss for me, but you know, it's like you, you, you know that you love the, the band. And so you're kind of in for life. Um, and I still am still am to this day, Mr. Corgan. Um, Anyway, you guys, this has been an absolute blast to talk about. I hope every episode is like this where I can just get lost in these memories and tangents about the experience and what was going on in my life in 1993 when this came out. Um, sure was an exciting time and it's fun to relive it with you. So thanks for joining me for Smashing Pumpkin Siamese Dream. I'm trying to remember if I covered everything that I wanted to in this episode. If I did, I, I can always talk about it on a future one. But thanks again, you guys. We'll see you next time. Keep rocking on and uh, stay tuned for more. Bye. Things are going to change. I feel it. It's just going to be that kind of fun. Waterproof records. Waterproof.